things that I've just been thinking through as I've been pondering the cross again today is, is the way that the Gospels, they spend so much time focused on the cross. And so if we were to look at John's Gospel, for example, which Martha read beautifully to us a few minutes ago, um, John's, John's Gospel starts off super quick in terms of the way it tells the story. So it begins, this cosmic beginning, with the phrase, in the beginning, which is a deliberate copying of the first words of the whole Bible, in the beginning, God, it says in Genesis. And John introduces Jesus with those words, in the beginning, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then in the first 18 verses, it covers basically the entire Old Testament and then Jesus arrives. So it starts the story super fast forward. Then it slows down for the first year of Jesus's life. It takes maybe three chapters for that. Then the second year, first year of Jesus's ministry rather. Then the second year of Jesus's ministry, it takes six chapters. So things slow down a little bit more. But then John takes nine chapters to talk about not the final year of Jesus's ministry, but the final week of his ministry. And of those nine chapters, he takes seven of them just to talk about 24 hours. And so what he's doing is it's like you watch a film in, in super high speed at the start, and then he slows it down and he slows it down and he slows it down because as it gets to the cross, he doesn't want us to miss a single frame. And the reason we want to always, but obviously particularly today, meditate on and chew on and delight in uh, and marvel at and enjoy the cross and all the cross means to us is not so that we can understand theory, but because when we get the cross, it changes everything about how we live. Um, I remember when I was a few years ago now, I was training to be a vicar and I had to do chaplaincy in a hospital. And I ended up sitting next to this old lady called Margaret and chatting away with her. And she told me about her life. She'd been married to her husband for 50 years and lived on a four floor flat and stuff like that. And you know how people just talk nonsense. And then and then it's almost like the moment you've got to go, they they drop on you what they've been wanting to say for the whole time. So I'm just getting up to leave, having had a nice little chat to her. And she grabbed me by the hand and she looked me in the eye because she talked a bit about how she was religious and stuff. And then she just said to me, sometimes I wonder whether I've done something. And she looked scared. And I think what she meant by that is she kind of had a relationship with God, but she, she, you know, she knew Jesus. She'd been going to church and she couldn't get out now. So she just listened to Christian stuff on the radio and TV and things. But she just had this fear in her that she'd done something that was going to offend him. That would mean he wouldn't welcome her in. And I, I recognize that feeling because it's something that I have felt at times in my own heart as well you know that this this even though you know jesus and you can you know that you're saved sometimes we can end up feeling guilty we can end up feeling ashamed we can end up feeling condemned not always but sometimes what i find is my natural inclination is to run away from god and hide from him rather than run to him and just be confident and just hide in him and what can help us with that is getting the cross and understanding it as a foundation for everything else and in the, in the extract we have from John's gospel, Jesus says this statement, his last words in this gospel before he dies. And it's the statement, it is finished. And that's really a translation of just one word in the Greek. We put it into three, but it's this single word that means I've accomplished it. I've done it. And one question I'd have when you hear Jesus says that, that's hugely significant. He says that before he dies. Why? What, what was finished? And he doesn't say, I am finished. Uh, it's not the kind of the cry of someone who's dying, I'm finished. What he says is, it is finished. And what he's referring to there is he's referring to his mission. 
So this isn't the last gasp cry of somebody who's worn out. What it is is a cry of triumph. Jesus in this moment is not the victim. He's the victor. And he's, he's sort of saying, I've done it. Everything I came to earth to accomplish, now I've accomplished it. And think about it a bit like if you, if you reach the summit of a mountain or you um, might finally manage to pass your driving test or you finish building an Ikea wardrobe and you stand back and you look at it and you say, it is done. It is finished. It's kind of like that a little bit, but obviously on a much more eternal and cosmic and magnificent scale. He's saying with this satisfaction, I've done everything the Father asked me to do. And we heard in Isaiah 53 from the reading that Juliet gave us that this was a plan that had long been kind of like in the background. The whole of the Old Testament tells of God's plan to save his people. Um, John, in the scripture we heard read, he says, all of these things happened in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And so what Jesus is saying in this moment on the cross is he's saying all of God's purposes, all of the plans, everything you're reading in the Old Testament, it was building up. Everything I've done in my life so far was building up to this moment on the cross. And I am declaring right now in this moment, it's done. And the purpose and the plan of all of that, from Genesis to this moment where Jesus breathes his last, the purpose and the plan of all of that, God's great plan, was to bring us into relationship with himself. It was to make it possible for us to have this relationship of confidence and of love with him as our God. And what's happening on the cross is Jesus is taking on himself everything that belongs to us. And we get in exchange everything that belongs to him. And so it answers for us the age-old question that Christians have asked, and I'm not people ask, who not Christians have asked, which is, how can I become right with God? And that the, the answer that the good news of Jesus gives is, you can't. You know what? There's no way we can ever earn a place at the table with God. But what we can do because of Jesus is receive one. It's a gift to us. One of the things that, that helps me picture this is uh, Mike and I will occasionally travel together. Obviously, we're not going anywhere at the moment with the lockdown, but um, Mike travels all over the world. And whenever he flies somewhere, he will always go economy. But um, he flies so much. He has this mileage status. He has a gold card that he's very proud of. Occasionally, he just gets it out and puts it on the table and polishes it a little bit. Uh, and that gets him access into these first class lounges that you have sometimes at airports. And um, I, I remember there was a time we were going somewhere and um, Mike and I were traveling together and he gets to take a guest into one of these lounges. He went on ahead of me for some reason. He went into this lounge and then I kind of walk into this lounge and everything about it oozes money and wealth. And I'm obviously, you know, I don't feel like I belong there. I'm in my little t-shirt and joggers and sort of like amble up to the table where there's these very um, kind of haughty looking receptionists. And they sort of look at me and they say, well, you know, what are you doing here? They don't put it like that, but that's what they're saying with their eyes. And, and, um, and they, they can see I don't belong. But what happens is after a moment, I just say, oh, does the name Mike Pilevacci mean anything to you? And at that point, their entire demeanor changes. Mike Pilevacci, you're a guest of Mike Pilevacci. He's here all the time. Sometimes he comes to the lounges just to sit and eat food for days. And then he just gets back in his car and drives back to Watford. They say, you're a guest of Mike Pilevacci, come on in. And so I swagger on in with total confidence to the first class lounge. Why am I able to get in there? I haven't done anything. It's nothing to do with Andy Croft, but the name of Mike Pilevacci gets me in. With the cross of Jesus, the whole message of it is, yeah, we, we, you're right, Margaret, we've done stuff, but it's not about 
we don't get in on the basis of what we have or haven't done, but on what's been done for us. When Jesus said it is finished, what he's saying is it's done and you're in. And um, I have found myself at times doubting that. And the place to come in those moments is back to just that simple word or that simple statement. It is ended. It is paid. It is completed. And just to meditate on it and ponder again, who is it that says that? Who is it that says that word? John starts his gospel with the words in the beginning. Do you know what Jesus says just before he dies? It is the end because he is the beginning and he is the end. He was there at the start of all things and he spoke the world into motion. And the same one who sustains everything by the power of his word alone then makes this statement from the cross, it's done. And so what I would say, if I could go back to Margaret, is I would just say to her, and I say it to myself um, regularly, is you have done something. You know what? Let's make a list, Margaret. Let's phone Albert right now. We'll get him on the phone. And he can start us off. Let's write it all on a whiteboard. All the things that we've done. I could make a list far longer than yours, Margaret. Let's write it all down. Let's look at it. Let's not pretend it's not there. But then let's remember what happens when Jesus dies on the cross. Because we get the whiteboard rubber, we wipe it all off, and instead we write, it is finished. And we remember, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done, we're home and we're his. And that's good forever. And the way Paul puts it, and I'll finish with this, the way that Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8, verse 32 to 34, he says this. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? And then he says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. No one. When we remember who says it is finished, not Satan, not other people, not even ourselves. We have no place to condemn because Jesus has declared it's done.